how can we find our courage to let go of the small ego that we have, the false self, the image that we project to people, and come into alignment with what's real, what's true, what is love. How can we do that? So that's why I, that's the answer that's come to me at this point in time about why this is so important to be able to face our fears. And I think for many of us in the 9-11 Truth Movement, this has become a psycho-spiritual journey because many of us do face a lot of fear when we run into this information. And we have to figure out how to heal ourselves of that fear and how to move on past it. Next on Progressive Spirit, psychotherapist Frances Schur. She talks about the book 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation. The role of the media. Don't go away. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. This is the fourth of my four-part series on the 9-11 Consensus Panel, whose work was released in book form on September 11, 2018. The book is 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation. The co-authors are David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth. In the first part of this series, I explained why I was spending four episodes on one book, and the reason is that this book could be the most dangerous book in America if what this book presents is true, that the official account of September 11, 2001 is false, then we're in trouble. If any one of the 51 points of evidence presented in this book is solid, then the American people have been played for fools. The truth of the matter is that anyone who reads this book and considers the evidence presented likely will become skeptical of the official narrative. Unless, of course, the evidence is just too scary to consider in the first place. And that's the topic of this fourth and final episode. According to my guest, psychotherapist Francis Schuer, the media is the problem. She says, The role of the media is the primary reason why good people become silent or worse about 9-11. We look to the media to tell us what is discussable. What is discussable in polite company is the way I put it. And if the media totally ignores an event, totally ignores the evidence that shows that 9-11 was a false flag operation then we, we don't take it seriously and we're afraid to discuss it. If, for example, so the media becomes an extremely crucial, it becomes a critical part of carrying off a PSYOP. If you can't cover up the event, then you can't be successful with your PSYOP. The media is crucial in the cover-up. She's written a series of articles for architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth entitled why good people become silent or worse about 9-11. She was on previously uh, to talk about those series of articles. Her latest installment in this series and the topic for today is called The Role of the Media, Whatever Happened to Investigative Journalists. Welcome, Fran, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you so much, John. I'm very happy to be back with you. Fran, you served on the consensus panel, on the 9-11 consensus panel. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience of serving on that panel and, and what its purpose is and, and why it's important? Uh, my understanding of the purpose of the 9-11 consensus panel is that it is a resource for people to go to to find out what the 9-11 truth movement does agree on. Um, it's a very good source for the media. Uh, for example, if the media wants to know 
what we do agree on in the uh, 9-11 truth movement, this is the best source to go to. There are so many theories out there about what happened on 9-11. Some of them are theories that don't hold water at all. And so obviously these theories will not garner consensus within the 9-11 consensus panel. For example, some people will say that mini nukes hit the World Trade Center buildings. That doesn't have evidence that holds water, and that's not going to be a point that we can agree on. Uh, that's one example. So the points that we can agree on, these are people who have various beliefs and have various backgrounds, and the points we can agree on, we come together with consensus. And it's been at work for, uh, what, seven years now? I believe that's correct. And about 50 different points have come up to to consensus. And as I was speaking with Elizabeth Woodworth earlier, the threshold for consensus is, is pretty high. Yes, it is. It, at least 85% of us have to agree. And so the consensus at the, at the end of the day is that the 9-11... Uh, what happened on September 11th, 9-11, was, was some kind of deep event and that's been covered over. Is, is, it could, is that, would you say that that's true? Yes, that's true. In a nutshell, that's what's true. And so the question that you bring to it is, given that, why is it that people resist even looking into what happened on 9-11? Uh, the series of articles that you wrote, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Why Do Good People Remain Silent or Worse About 9-11? Can you tell me about how you started those series of articles? Yes. Um, yes, it's Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? And that began and when I first started looking into this issue of 9-11 truth and started organizing an educational group here in Colorado, and because I have a psychology background, I I'm, I'm uh, have been a psychotherapist, people in the movement say, Fran, why don't you write something about this? Why is this so difficult for people? And I, at the beginning, I said, you know, I don't know. I, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. And uh, finally, uh, one person uh, on the architects and engineers writing team emailed me and said, would you just write a few words, just write something, and then we'll pick it up and write an article about the psychology of 9-11, why this is so difficult for people to accept that it was not what the story, the official story that we were told is not true. I started writing a few words, and I kept writing, and I could not stop writing. And like suddenly everything was coming together for me. And so I... So he said, wow, why don't you just write the article? I said, okay. And so I, thinking I was going to write an article, and then I just kept writing and learning more, and people uh, started giving me suggestions about things I should look into. And so it wound up becoming a very, very long serial essay uh, that is being published on Architects and Engin Engineers for 9-11 Truth, and that's how it all started. And another another point of this was really interesting, because I remember thinking in the early days, gosh, this is so difficult for people, this issue. And I really hope, and yet the evidence for 9-11, it being a deep event of some sort, but not being what we were told, the evidence is so crystal clear. It's so easy to understand, even for the layperson. You do not have to be a scientist or an engineer to understand this evidence. I really hope someday the social psychologist, uh, the psychology profession will look into this and it will be a great study for what happens to people when they run into evidence that contradicts their worldview. And I hope someone will do that study someday and maybe write a book on it. And then it seems that I'm winding up being that person. So that's really interesting how it all evolved like that. You know, we we put the focus in many re respects on on the individual. Why, why do we resist? What's oh, it's a matter with our psychology that we might resist this? But right. really, the, the 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 issue is this is. Would you say this is a bigger psyop designed to do exactly that? Yes, I would say that that it is a large psyop designed to do that. Um, that is one thing I write about. You know, I mean, I. Uh, I've written on many issues about the psychology of it, but uh, it, it is a psychological operation. And 
for example, people, it has been shown that people don't have a hard time acknowledging small lies, but it's a really huge lie that they cannot acknowledge. That goes beyond their belief that people could do something that lie about something so huge. It boggles the mind to think that elements within our government who are supposed to be protecting U.S. citizens are not doing that and, in fact, are purposefully killing and harming U.S. citizens in order for an excuse, a pretext to go to war. It's just very, it just boggles people's minds. They can't get it. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to listen to it. As one person said to me, I cannot listen to what you're saying because if I listened to what you were saying, psychologically, I would go downhill. The level, I think, I don't know if you would use this word, I know David Ray Griffin does, of, of mm-hmm. the demonic or the evil aspect yes. of that is, is so much that, that, that takes advantage, in a sense, of our good nature. That's right. For example, and I believe it was, it was actually Hitler who said this, and this is one of the things I've written about, who said people, you know, ordinary people will tell little lies themselves, but they won't tell a gigantic lie. They'd be too afraid of being caught he was giving us an inroad to looking at our own psychology that, yeah, we tell little lies all the time, little white lies, but we would never tell big lies. So we're basically good people. We would never think of harming anybody in this way. But, you know, there are people who don't have a conscience or have very little conscience who would harm people in this terribly evil way. It boggles our mind. It's like as one person said to me, people just aren't that evil. And yet we're learning that people are that evil. We only have to look back to our history. Uh, One of the main examples being the Nazi era in uh, Germany to know that people can, ordinary people, very ordinary people actually, not even psychopaths, but very ordinary people can wind up, people can be very evil, can do very evil things when they're ordered to. You mentioned earlier about the, the woman who says just, just can't believe that can happen, uh, that denial, and that creates yes. in us cognitive dissonance. Uh, can you talk about that? Right. For example, most of us have a worldview that, for example, like what she said, people just aren't that evil. That's her worldview in that case. Uh, she's running into evidence now that shows that it really looks like, from the, all the evidence, from the evidence trail we have, that it was elements within our United States government, along with in other intelligence agencies from outside of the U.S., that have actually orchestrated, the evidence really indicates this, have orchestrated something as shocking, as horrendous as 9-11, the 9-11 attacks. So that's where she has her worldview is being confronted. And so that brings up what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, which is basically an anxiety. It is a very great discomfort that their sense of home, their worldview is crumbling. When they run into cognitive dissonance, this difficult time, this uncomfortableness, this anxiety, they will want to do two things. First of all, they want to deny this information. They want to avoid it, for one thing. If they hear it, they will want to deny that there could be anything to it. Or if they cannot deny that the evidence has validity, then they will try to minimize the evidence, or they could come up with a secondary cognition. Uh, one, I actually had two really interesting examples of that which is uh, there was an ardent Bush supporter that I knew. She said, I, and she really loved George W. Bush. So she said she couldn't deny controlled demolition of the three buildings, World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7. And she said, okay, I can see that there's controlled demolition. I think what happened, she said very proudly to me, I think I understand it now. When... In the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, uh, when Clinton was in office, 
when they started repairing the World Trade Center, they then laced those buildings with bombs, and therefore it's all Clinton's fault. You know, So she devised a secondary cognition to explain something that she could not deny, the evidence for controlled demolition of those three buildings. But then there was another friend I had who was an ardent Obama supporter who uh, said... She couldn't deny the evidence either. The evidence was crystal clear to her that there had to be controlled demolition, which of course implies that this was had to be there had to be foreknowledge of this event and preparation. She said, "Oh, I think Obama never he never could have known about this before 9/11 happened. He probably knows about it now or before he wouldn't have known about this before he was president, but now that he's president, he probably knows." And he'd probably really like to tell us about it, but he can't because if he did, everything would be in chaos in our country. The stock market would plummet, and therefore he cannot tell us about it. In other words, she was seeing him as a very uh, benign uh, leader who uh, really uh, wanted us to know the truth, and and we know that that's not that's not correct. So those are two examples of how people developed secondary cognitions in order to explain evidence that they could not explain that would challenge their worldview too much. Also, that cognitive dissonance can can turn people into just kind of attacking others who bring this news up. That's correct. Exactly. And that's exactly what I mean in the title when I say, why do good people become silent or worse about 9-11? Because not only they, they may not become silent, but they will spend inordinate amounts of energy fighting us, trying their best with intellectual contortions to prove that we are wrong, that we, this could not be have been done by elements within the U.S. government. I'm speaking with Fran Schurz, a psychologist, member of the uh, 9-11 Consensus Panel. The book uh, it's come out in September is called 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation. Uh, we're talking about her series of articles on why people become silent or worse uh, about 9-11. One of the other things is that it is scary. I, I, I know why we, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> It's yeah. because I'm, I'm gonna, I don't want to be ridiculed by my friends. I don't want to lose my friends. I don't want to lose my family members. I don't want to lose my job. Right. I mean, that's a real fear. It's, it is. A, they are real fears. And it's, a, it's an issue that, that splits families, that splits friends. You lose, you, sometimes you lose friends. Sometimes it splits families. Children can't talk to their parents. Parents can't talk to their children. You're afraid to talk to... Uh, uh, someone you meet, uh, a new person, you're afraid to talk to your neighbor about it. And that's because you're afraid they will label you uh, a conspiracy theorist and a nut, and they don't want to be associated with you. <laughs> so, so yeah, fear plays a huge role in keeping people silent. It's a huge, huge role. Because that's you really talk about that. That is one of our basic survival instincts, isn't it, to be able to conform? Well, our survival instinct is to be uh, not ostracized, to be part of a community. And because we, being very social creatures, we need community. We need a community of people to survive. We, we really can't survive on our own very well. Often in the past, when people were banished from their society, they were expected to die. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. And I think that's one of the major fears that people have is the fear of losing friends, uh, losing their job, and it's a real fear. It's kind of going back to the, uh, you think of the uh, church, I'm a member of the church, obviously, and before the shunning, that uh, that idea Mm -hmm. how powerful Mm -hmm. that is to be rejected, uh, shunned, ignored uh, out of of the community itself. I was thinking also, in in many respects, it's, it's kind of like, Lesbian or, or gay people who are coming out of the closet and the fear right. of that. Um, yes. But on the other hand, and in fact, I want to get to this because I, you write this series of articles not to just describe, you know, how afraid and, and awful it is, but there is another side to this that actually it ultimately is freeing to come out of the closet. That's so correct. And uh, I think we talked last time about um, uh, this very important role of fear to keep us silent or, or, you know, or to attack the movement. But 
we talked about when we're on a psycho-spiritual journey, facing our fears and not letting our fears run us is a very, very important part of that journey. I was asking myself recently, well, why is that so important to face our fears and not let fear run our lives? And the answer that came to me at this point in time anyway is that when we're on a psycho-spiritual journey, we are looking to become more conscious. Conscious. We are looking to align ourselves with the divine, with God, with the higher self, whatever word we use for the higher power. And when we are looking to align ourselves with the divine, we need to let go of everything that is false, everything that is not true. We need to have the courage to face what is true. And we need to have the courage to let go of our small ego, of our little self, and all the things we identify with. And so that we can come into more alignment with the divine and become more conscious of the underlying reality of our own divinity and the divinity of everything in creation. That's how I see it. So if we, if we cannot face our fears on these worldly issues, how can we find our, and find our courage there? How can we find our courage to let go of the small ego that we have, the, the false self, the image that we project to people? and come into alignment with what's real, what's true, what is love. How can we do that? So that's why I, that's the answer that's come to me at this point in time about why this is so important to be able to face our fears. And I think for many of us in the 9-11 Truth Movement, this has become a psycho-spiritual journey because many of us do face a lot of fear when we run into this information. And we have to figure out how to heal ourselves of that fear and how to move on past it. Because the results of this deep event and, and, and the results that are ongoing still today are incredibly destructive to all of humanity. And, yes. uh, and so there, there is a, there, it isn't just about us as an individual. It, it's also a spiritual journey to be part of healing uh, the planet. This is so correct. And when we look at this, we see when we start understanding this PSYOP of 9-11, and we see the results of it with truly millions of people being killed now in the Middle East, and million, many millions more being having their lives ruined, becoming refugees in the world. I think we're at the uh, crisis, uh, uh, refugee crisis that has not been surpassed since World War II. We've just have a huge amount of refugees, a huge amount of people who've lost their homes, lost family members, are in another country or in camps uh, in their own country. Uh, and so I really firmly believe that if we are spiritual people, religious people are spiritual people, it's very important to engage with life. And, and you know, we hear about engaged Buddhism, but I think that applies to all spiritual people. It applies to Christians. We need to have engaged Christianity where we live our values and live the, the teachings of Jesus, where we have engaged Judaism, where the Jews would live their values, um, the engaged um, Islam. Uh, whatever the religion is, um, we need to apply it in our life. That becomes our spiritual practice is engaging with life. And if we sit aside and allow these lies to persist and allow these millions of people to be killed, uh, how can we say that we're living according to our values? I'm speaking with Fran Schur, if you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit. Uh, Fran Schur uh, is a licensed um professional counselor. Uh, she has written uh, a series of articles for architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth called uh, Why People Become, Why Do People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? And want to talk about the, the newest one. Uh, when I spoke with you before, this one hadn't been written. You, you were writing it called The Role of the Media, uh, Whatever Happened to Investigative Journalists. And you write here, the role of the media 
is the primary reason why good people become silent or worse about 9-11. What is it? How is this PSYOP connected with the media? There's an interesting term I've run into recently called media politics. And um, maybe I'll get to that because that's what I'm writing about a little bit later. And I'm writing about that in my next segment, uh, part 22, on the special role of the CIA and the media. But where the media plays a role is in our culture, we, we look to the media to tell us what is discussable, what is discussable in polite company is the way I put it. And if the media totally ignores an event, totally ignores the evidence that shows that 9-11 was a false flag operation, then we, we don't take it seriously and we're afraid to discuss it. If, for example, so the media becomes an extremely crucial, it becomes a critical part of carrying off a sign-up. If you can't cover up the event, then you can't be successful with your PSYOP. The media is crucial in the cover-up. How I got on this was this particular part is I was writing about the psychological dynamics of why people cannot face this evidence, but then my the writing team at Architects and Engineers said, Fran, I think you need to write about the media too, and I really resisted because I'm not an expert in the media, I'm not a journalist, and I resisted that, but then I decided they're really right. This is the main reason people become silent about this evidence that we're facing. I decided to do it. It took a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of research. This first part on the media is called the role of the media, whatever happened to investigative journalists. So I have four examples and four examples of award-winning journalists or whistleblowers who became journalists and who it was, who and what it was that actually censored their stories in the media. I present them as though they are witnesses in a court case who are coming forth and saying, okay, I had this critical story to tell the, the public. Here is who, here is what censored me from having this story published. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. I'm speaking with Francis Schur of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. The book we are discussing is 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation. We're examining the psychological barriers that keep people from looking at the evidence that challenges deeply held worldviews. More to come. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website again is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Francis Shore is speaking with me about 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation. This is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Shuck. I have a book in my possession that I have not read yet, but I'm thankful to your article because you highlight it. It's called Into the Buzzsaw, Leading right. Journalists Expose the Myth of a Free Press. And and I think that's part of it, isn't it? The, the myth of, or well, tell me about it, because I think people will say, well, wait a second, are, are we have the the most free press in the world? Yes, that's what, and, and this is, again, it's another subject, and I've seen people's eyes glaze over when I tell them that our press is not free, uh, but it took a lot of my own research to discover that myself. It is such a sacred myth in our society, a myth that uh, we absolutely believe this is, this is dogma in our society, that we have a free press, and there are investigative journalists who will look into these issues, and we have a mainstream media the New York Times that will print anything that's fit to print, you know. So people believe this very much in our society. When you start digging beneath the surface, you find it's not at all true. For example, with these four people, I'll just list their names. Michael Levine, who was a drug enforcement agent uh, detective. 
uh, trying to prevent drugs from coming to the U.S. The CIA would always stop him from indicting these people, from catching them in the act. There was Christina Borgeson, who was trying to reveal the evidence that showed that flight TWA-800 was shot down by a missile. And she's the, ar- and she's the author of that, uh, or editor she, of that book, Into the Buzzsaw. She's she editor of that anthology, Into the Buzzsaw. And she also has her own article in there about her terrible experience trying to expose this evidence about flight uh, TWA Flight 800. Then there was Monica Jensen-Stevenson, who was exposing the evidence that we left you know, hundreds, many hundreds of soldiers behind in Vietnam purposefully, purposefully left them behind and did not rescue them. And then there's uh, Sabelle Edmonds, who was a translator for the FBI, who the ACLU now, who has evidence to tell us about, and some of it about 9-11 that would disprove the 9-11 official story. She has been labeled by the ACLU, who defended her, as the most gagged person ever in the U.S., in U.S. history. So all of these people tell their stories, and when we pull the curtain back from their stories, they document who censored their stories. And it came down to be the CIA, the FBI, the Pentagon, military intelligence, media owners who had conflicting political agendas, who... Uh, supported, maybe they were uh, very connected with the military-industrial complex, the White House, advertisers, powerful family dynasties, extremely wealthy individuals, and they're all the ones that are documented. These are who and what censored these stories in our media. So they documented very clearly who censored their stories. I highly recommend this book to everyone. It's, it's fascinating. And it connects to 9-11 in the sense that if, let's say, a reporter for, oh, I don't know, the Oregonian wanted to write an expose on 9-11, what would happen? First of all, what we see is that that reporter wanted to report a story about 9-11 that disagreed with the official story. The editor would censor it. He would not allow it to be reported. That's assuming that that particular newspaper is a compromise like almost all of our media is compromised by the powers that be. The next time that reporter would be more careful, then he might go to the editor and say, well, can I report this story on 9-11? The editor would then say no. And then the third time, if you look at what usually happens with these people, is that they would then censor themselves they would think of an idea and they wouldn't even pursue it because they would know by then that it would not be printed or not be broadcast. And that's the biggest deal of all, isn't it? Self-censorship in some respects. It is a big deal, yes. But they would; these reporters would be censored. Uh, they would be censured and their work would be censored, you know, nevertheless. The biggest question that comes to us in the 9-11 Truth Movement and other people is, well, what about the independent media? What about... Chris Hedges, what about Amy Goodman, Glenn Greenwald, Robert Perry, who's just passed away, Bill Moyers? What about these independent journalists who have done such amazing work? We don't know. We all, all we can do is guess. All, all we can do is speculate. So what I did is I went to Christina Borgeson, the author, the, the uh, uh, editor of this anthology, Into the Buzzsaw, and she's also written another book about the media after 9-11. And I said... What's your take on this? Why, why do these very courageous journalists uh, not report on 9-11? There's so much that could report, be reported on. They could have reported on the nanothermite that was found in the dust at the World Trade Center. They could have reported on the free fall of World Trade Center 7 and the implications of that. There's so much clear evidence they could have reported on. Why don't they? Why do they become silent? or worse, about this 9-11 issue. So she gave me a great quote, and I I can read it to you if you want. Do you want me to read the whole thing? Yes. Okay, so she said, they're talented journalists, and they worked hard to navigate between reporting that goes right up to the line of what is acceptable to the powers that be, and reporting that goes over the line and would cost them everything. It took Robert Perry years 
to get over being blackballed for his Newsweek reporting on Iran-Contra. When he was at the New York Times, Hedges was reprimanded by his bosses after he criticized what was happening in Iraq while giving a commencement address in 2003. These individuals would immediately become targets for marginalization, loss of funding, and or outlets for their work, or even worse forms of retaliation if they cross the line because they have achieved a critical mass audience. In other words, an audience big enough to create problems for the powers that be if used to counter official narratives on third rail issues. That's a great term, third rail issue. If they did that, they would attract dangerous, if not fatal, attention from the powers that be. The fact that they are widely viewed as good journalists, not beholden to the powers that be, makes them dangerous, but not too dangerous. They would only become dispensable, she said, if they invested that credibility in scrutinizing the ultimate third rail issue, 9-11. They're doing a lot of good, carefully hoeing the rows they're hoeing now, and that would all go down the tubes if they turned their attention to looking into whether or not the official narrative about 9-11 is true. So she mentioned this word third rail issue, and I did not know that term before, so I asked her, what does that mean? Well, that is a third rail on an electrified railway system, for example, the subway in New York. It's a third rail that is electrified, which if you touch it, you get electrocuted. So a third rail issue, another example of a third rail issue is the Palestinian-Israeli issue, which she told me is an issue that very few people will touch. If people touch these issues, it goes beyond what the powers that be will accept. They will lose everything. And as another investigative journalist also told me, she said also, brave reporters, she said, know just how far they can go before risking their lives. Some have taken risk regardless, perhaps naively, perhaps not. And their suicides or their accidents, quote unquote, have sent a clear message. So Gary Webb was who reported on the cocaine being brought into uh, Los Angeles black communities uh, was a good example of that. We don't know if he committed suicide or if he was suicided by the CIA, but in any event, it was a very chilling event for any other journalist. That's the quotes I got from both Christina and then another. the other last one was from a reporter who remained anonymous. So that is what is at stake. Fran Schur is a licensed uh, psychotherapist, uh, a series of articles called Why Good People Become Silent or Worse about 9-11. Her most recent is regarding the media. And yet, there are people who touch the third rail and don't die. Uh, the, the point is, is that I, what, what I also get from your article, and this is what yes. I, is that, yes, but early in our history, similar censorship was imposed on the early opponents of slavery and on the suffragettes. But by mm-hmm. studying these historical examples, we can be encouraged that the media's mockery cannot prevent the ultimate success of those who endeavor to reverse egregious policies and practices. So what I get from your article is don't give up. Right. We, if we look at history... Uh, We're not the only movement that has had a very difficult time that has been castigated by the media. There is the suffrage movement. Uh, These women were horribly abused. There is the civil rights movement, the abolitionist movement. So we can look at history and we can see that we just need to keep pushing on. There are other people who suffered way more than we suffer, have suffered, uh, and yet they they, uh, prevailed. So keep this, just keep on. And, and they were very unpopular at the time. And there is uh, a bigger picture behind all of this. I mean, the opposition is great. Your new article uh, is coming out that you're working on now. You can talk a little bit about it. I would like uh, the CIA and the media. In fact, I'm going to lead you in on that on my Facebook page. I recently posted uh, one of your articles, and and one of the first responses was from a Facebook person that says, well, can this learned person (laughs) uh, (laughs) then say uh, why all these people who planned this are secret? And we haven't heard nothing about it. How, how, how could they have kept all this secret? 
That's a very common response and very common question that we get. First of all, people do need to know that the CIA has put out to the media, uh, this is a talking point that the media should put out to uh, the world, is that people can't keep secrets. There would have been too, way too many people who would have been involved, and people can't keep secrets. People have a conscience. People would have talked. And what we find is that's just not true. First of all, they're not going to ask people uh, who, for example, planted the explosives in the buildings. People, they were going to know who they can ask to do this, or they may not even know what they were doing. Who knows? It could have been intelligence agent people from another country, and along with the CIA. Who knows who it was? The main fact that I want to speak about here is that big, huge events can be kept secret. One example, there's two examples I want to give. Number one is the Manhattan Project. Even Truman did not know this was happening until he became president. There was well over 100,000 people. I think I've read 130,000 people who were working on this Manhattan Project. The way it was kept secret was by a strategy called compartmentalization. So every person who's working on this project only knew their piece of the project, but only a very, very few people at the top knew the whole project, what it was really about. So people were admonished to not reveal what they were doing, and then they uh, didn't know what they were doing, actually. They, didn't, oh, they only had their piece of the puzzle. So compartmentalization is very effective in keeping secrets. Another example is, and my latest article that I'm working on now, is called The CIA in the Media. There's a special role that the CIA has played in our media, in censoring our media. The way this was revealed in 1975 at the church committee hearings, the church committee was looking at the abuses of the CIA and the FBI in their country to see if they were going beyond their, what they were given authority to do. And part of that was to look into their role in the media. It was only a small part. But when they got to that, they discovered something quite astonishing, that the CIA had its tentacles in all media of any significance. This was both foreign and national media. So when the church committee asked for the evidence, asked to be shown the documents that prove that both journalists had been co-opted by the CIA and the CIA had agents with journalistic coverage working within these media outlets, the CIA had a hard time finding these documents because of compartmentalization. What had happened is every reporter that was working for the CIA or every CIA agent who was working undercover as a reporter had its own project name and its own people looking over that project. So there was, let's say there are 400, it looks like there was way more than 400, but there, there was only 400 reported. There would have been 400 projects and they have a very hard time finding all those documents because of the lack of centralization and the compartmentalization. So even there, it was another example of how this operation was kept so secret. We talk about uh, Eisenhower back in 1961 talking about the military-industrial complex. Yes. But it's far bigger than that now, right? We're talking yes. about uh, military, industrial, financial, uh, media, intelligence. Are there more to say? I mean, it's so connected Academic. together. When you think of how much of the media is really controlled yeah. by just a few corporations, and they're connected really with, with the intelligence yeah. agencies. Academic Academics is very highly connected. Academic so, publishing. Yeah, and, pub, and yes, yeah, the military, industrial, media, academic. Uh, what else? What, what else did you read out? It's all. <laughs> it's very, very connected. And and it doesn't necessarily have to be explicit, right? We talk about people think of censorship, and we we think of the mm-hmm. Soviet way or or something mm-hmm. like that. But that isn't how censorship really works. It it really works psychologically within. We censor ourselves. That's correct. And there's another aspect which I'll be writing about next after my 
essay segment on the special role of the CIA because I thought it they really do we really do need to focus on that because it's such a big part of our the history of our media but the next one is on the structure of the media itself and that's very important the media have become part of mega conglomerate corporations the corporations expect the media part of the corporation to to be as profitable because now they're publicly traded corporations they expect them to be as profitable as the other parts of these corporations in order to be as profitable what do they do they have to cut cost how do they cut cost they fire investigative journalists they don't have people in foreign countries they listen to their advertisers when their their advertisers become very powerful in what they can or cannot report so was the media always like this or has it always been sort of like this and it's just gotten a great deal worse it's never been exactly like this uh, i'm still studying the history of it and i still i will be addressing that in future writings but the uh, history of the media is that uh, in the past you would go to any city and you would see you would have several different uh, newspapers or perhaps radio stations you would have several different media outlets with different viewpoints and different political agendas so you could read a very conservative media outlet uh, newspaper but in the same city you would have another newspaper that was say put out by the labor contingent and you would have a whole different viewpoint so you got different papers different press different media with different viewpoints now we have a monopoly and that's huge in the censorship and the structure is now we have a monopoly what do we have they uh, probably five four to five to six major media outlets all owned by mega corporations no matter how many means we have of learning our news the news we're getting is pretty much the same in all of those outlets Fran sure we just have a couple of minutes left so I want to give I want you to give us some hope here and and I'm thinking I'm, it might be within this article itself whatever happened to investigative journalists uh, you write before 2004 it was common for a majority of Americans to profess at least some trust in the mass media uh, but since then less than half of Americans feel that way now only about a third of the United States has any trust in the fourth estate a stunning development for an institution designed to inform the public so, I mean, is this a sign of hope in a sense that the American people are dis beginning to distrust the media? It seems a little bit of a conflict. I'm not really sure uh, how to measure that, because on one level, we seem to trust the media uh, in many ways. But mm -hmm. at the, at the also, there's this poll that says we are distrusting. Can you unravel that? <laughs> right. It's kind of hard to unravel, but it is true. It's, it was fat. What I learned with fascinating part here is that it's actually uh, Republicans or conservatives who distrust the media the most. And uh, Democrats and older people uh, tend to uh, trust the media more. Young people are distrusting the media. So I think the message is really getting to people that the media is not trustworthy, that they are compromised. And uh, I don't think people are looking to the media as, as such an authority anymore. Uh, as these polls show, that less than a third are trusting the media in general. So, but we have the internet. And as long as we can keep that free, the internet is really, truly educating people about the issues that the media will not touch. So that's very hopeful. And I really do hope that continues and we can keep that, keep that going. And of course, that takes people to do some work. That's uh, right. <laughs> to do that, not just Absolutely. to trust what the screens tell us. Not to do say that. Say that again, John. I'm saying, and, uh, and not just simply to trust what the screens <laughs> tell us. That yes, is the, the, the television tell, exactly, screens and, and exactly. the stations. To read critically and um, do your own research. You didn't really write about this, but I wonder if there's uh, there's also this strategy of right versus left. Um, mm -hmm. we, we can become kind of enlightened about if we're liberals, well, we know that Fox media is, is crazy. Or if we're conservatives, right. we don't trust MSNBC. But right. I, I wonder if that pitting is part of a bigger puppet strings behind both of them. I see that as true. I don't know how that works, but I do believe that still, even with MSNBC and Fox, you're still getting the official story 
of many different issues. You're still getting the official story on what happened on 9-11. It's uh, very rare that you get anything that deviates from the mainstream. I think this pitting, this divide and conquer, you pit people against each other. Uh, you know, my liberal friends will see the Republicans as the black hats and we're the white hats and my conservative friends will see the opposite. And, you know, here's something that I really found very inspiring. I actually had a dinner recently with Cynthia McKinney, who was the former congressperson for uh, Georgia, from Atlanta, Georgia. And she actually held a congressional hearing on 9-11. And because of that, she was run out of office. But anyway, at this dinner, she said, you know, we all have to get out of our silos. She said, when I was running for office in Georgia, I got in my car and I drove out to Ku Klux Klan territory. She's an Afro-American woman. Can you imagine how scary that was for me to do that? And I just was so impressed. He said, yet I got out, I knocked on their doors, and you know what? They voted for me. And she found common ground with these people. She found compassion for their views. And I thought that was so inspiring. And I think that's what we need to do, is we need to come together. We need to get out of our silos. We need to talk to people who have different views than we do and learn how to talk civilly find our compassion and find our heart with each of these people, no matter what their values are. Fran Shure has been my guest. She uh, is a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. That website is consensus911.org. The book uh, that's uh, come out in September is 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation uh, by Elizabeth Woodworth and David Ray Griffin. Uh, This wraps up my series on 9-11. Fran, thank you for your continued uh, good work inviting us to to be courageous and seeking the truth. Thank you so much, John, and thank you for being courageous. I really, really appreciate it. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.